All right. Please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 17. As we continue to preach week by week through the gospel of Matthew, we come to the transfiguration of the Son of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come to you now as we come to your word in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that by your spirit, through the preaching of your word, that you would do what only you can do. That you would exalt the name of your Son. That you would shine glory, shine glory into people's hearts today, Lord. God, I ask like Moses did, I pray that you would show us your glory. Glorify Jesus Christ and save souls here today. Build up your church. Increase our faith. Increase our longing and love to see, to finally see Jesus Christ. He is our one and only hope. He is our King. And we want to worship him today through the preaching of your word. So please help us. In Jesus' name, amen. Matthew 17, I just want to start prepping you for what's here with this one question, this really, really important question, and that is this, who is Jesus? The Gospel of Matthew is about this man named Jesus. Who is he? Who is Jesus? This is perhaps the most important question in the world. The eternal, here it is, the eternal destiny of every single human soul hinges on how you answer this question. Who is Jesus? How do you answer that question? Because I'm going to tell you, everybody's got to answer that question. Even when you don't answer, you're answering the question. You're going to have to answer that question. Everybody, and I mean everybody, is going to have to personally answer the question that Jesus asked in chapter 17. Who do you say that I am? Man, there's a thousand wrong answers to that question. Who is Jesus? Is he a myth? Just a figment of the religious imagination? A criminal? A religious rebel that was executed by the Romans? Is he just another good teacher? Just another one of those really 
great spiritual gurus like Muhammad or Buddha or Confucius or any of those guys. A good teacher. That, that's, that's the viewpoint today. Jesus is a really good moral teacher. He's got some really good ideas. He's got some really nifty sayings that we should try to live out in our lives to be better neighbors, to even be a better country. Just this week, at the National Prayer Breakfast on Thursday, the President of the United States acknowledged that Jesus is a really good teacher. He said on Thursday, quote, You know, at the moment of great division, our democracy is at great risk. And I pray, this is Biden, I pray that we follow what Jesus taught us to serve rather than to be served. And he said of himself, he said, I don't always do it, but I try. So, so the president is suggesting that we should follow what Jesus has taught us. We should listen to him. Listen to Jesus. Really good teacher, that Jesus. Man, what if the Jesus from Matthew 17 showed up at last week's National Prayer Breakfast? What do you think President Biden would do and those people that were in that room? i tell you what they would do. They'd do exactly, exactly what Peter, James, and John do in this text. They fall on their face, terrified. He's more than a good teacher. Who is Jesus? I'm telling you, this text, this transfiguration moment, answers that question in a stunning way. And man, this is... This is an incredibly rich passage of Scripture. D.A. Carson describes the transfiguration as a, listen, a symbol-charged self-disclosure of Jesus. And I'm here to tell you that that's an understatement. A symbol-charged self-disclosure of Jesus. I can't tell you how many trails there are to chase both backwards in redemptive history and forward in redemptive history from this little paragraph. And every commentary, every commentary I've read, every sermon I've listened to, and I've preached this text now twice, and none of them seem to do justice for what's here. And I know my attempt is going to be another long another attempt and a long list of failures to do that but man i hope to give you just a little taste of the glory of christ that's shown here and i want to do that in like three different phases history theology and application that's kind of the way i want to look at this text i want you to see the historical reality of the transfiguration. Right? I want you to see what is going on here. I want you to see what is happening here as we read through, I want to go through passage by passage, 
verse by verse, and we give you, hopefully give you a real and vivid sense of what's going on, of what happened 2,000 years ago. And along the way, I want to kind of stir you up by asking some questions that we're going to come back and answer second in the theological section, the theological design that's in the transfiguration. And last, I want to try to help you see a couple of ways that you and I should respond to this event that happened 2,000 years ago. So, my paper's stuck. So first, Matthew 17, the history, what's really going on here. And before I even start reading, I gotta remind you something. You gotta remember, this really is history. I know it sounds like an obvious statement, but I want you to get it. This really happened. This really happened. This is not an allegory or parable or dream or myth. This really happened. Jesus really did take three of his disciples and go up on a mountain. He really was transformed. His face really did shine like the sun from inside himself. And, and two guys from the Old Testament really did show up. Two guys from another world appeared. And there really was this big, massive glory cloud that came and engulfed them. And there really was this booming, thundering, majestic voice from heaven that said, this is my son. Listen to This really happened. So remind yourself of that right now. Before we even look at it, this really did happen. And not only did this really happen, this is really spectacular. This is mind-boggling, spectacular stuff. And so I want you to be reminded of the reality, but also be warned about something. Man, be warned that we have become severely numbed to this kind of stuff. Severely numbed to the supernatural. We need, to be, we need to be careful not to let Hollywood and video games diminish what we understand and what we see in this passage. We've got to realize that, man, we are constantly immersed and bombarded Day in and day out with so many special effects and computer graphics and movies and videos and images that we're just not stunned by anything anymore. Man, we can use technology to create the most realistic images of anything that we can think up in our mind. The things we're about to read in Matthew 7, man, we see stuff like this all the time in movies and video games. But get this, movies aren't real. This is real. This is real. This really happened. And so let's look at what really happened. First, verse 1, it says, After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, 
and led them up a high mountain by themselves. So the first words are after six days. So this is this is happening about a week after the conversations we see in chapter seven, uh, excuse me, sixteen, the previous chapter between Jesus and his disciples, where Jesus asked that question. Who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And then Peter makes that great confession. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus first introduces this concept of building his church and having to go to Jerusalem and be rejected and suffer and be killed and be raised from the dead. And then Peter says, no way. Peter rebukes Jesus. Jesus rebukes back. Says, get behind me, Satan. And then Jesus calls them all to take up their own cross and follow after him. And he says, you got to lose your life. you got to lose your soul for my name's sake if you want to gain it. And then he reveals that he's going to come back in glory with his angels to judge the world in righteousness. And he even encourages them that some of them are actually going to see him coming into the, see Jesus coming into his kingdom before they die. And why does Jesus say that? You see, all along the way, I'm going to ask these questions. I want to start to stir you up. It's like, what? Yeah, man, there's, there's a lot going on here. Why does Jesus say that? What does he mean? But that's the last thing he says. And a week later, here he is going up on a mountain with Peter, James, and John. Notice he only takes three. Three of the very first disciples he calls in the Gospel of Matthew. Peter and his fishing partner, James, and his brother John. Why them? Why just three of them? And why these three? Jesus takes them up on a mountain. Who knows where the mountain is? A lot of people try to guess. Some people think the six days indicates that it's a long way off. But what I do know is it's more than just a little hill. It's a high mountain. Why? Why, why are they up on a high mountain? I want you to know that I think the transfiguration that happens here occurs at night while Jesus is praying. Now I get this from the Gospel of Luke. You see this transfiguration is recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And they each have a few extra details. And I'm going to fill some of those in along the way. But Luke tells us that Jesus and his disciples went up on the mountain to pray. Wouldn't you like to know what Jesus was praying the moment he was transfigured? And Luke also says that his disciples were heavy with sleep. And that they came down from the mountain the next day. So they spent the night up here. And this is why I think that this happens at night. And think about it. If that's true, think about how much more spectacular this scene is. 
if it happens at night while Jesus is praying. So imagine that. It's, it's dark. It's quiet. They are miles away from anybody or anything. Way up on top of this high mountain. And the only sound you hear is the Son of God praying. And the disciples are laying there half asleep. And this happens. Verse 2. It says, Jesus was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. So in a moment like that, as he's praying, Jesus is radically transformed right before their eyes. And his whole body, note that, his whole body shines like the sun from within. Matthew says his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as a light. So think about that image. Not just his face, but his entire body lit up with a light so bright you can't even see the color of his clothes anymore. Mark says his clothes became radiant, intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. Luke says that his clothing his clothing became dazzling white. This reminds me of two things. Nuclear fission, which is what powers the sun, but I've never been near that, or a welder's arc. You ever seen anybody welding? How long did you look at that? Man, there's this spectacular little brilliant white lights that'll burn your eyes out if you look at it. Even at high noon, even at high noon, you can spot somebody welding a mile away. It's like it, it's brighter than the sun. That's what's going on. His entire body suddenly looked like that. This white light just streaming out through his skin, through his clothes, piercing the night Sky, can you imagine somebody being way down in a valley far away? What they see up there? Can you imagine being there and seeing this? Man, here, here's a man that Peter, James, and John have been living with and walking with and talking with. They've seen him eat and laugh and cry. They've even seen him do miracles, crazy, incredible miracles. But man... What is this? And here's where you gotta ask another question, why? Like, why does this happen to Jesus here? And if that weren't enough, and that ought to be enough, but if that weren't enough, look what happens next. Verse three, it says, and behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. It's like, behold, bam. Look at here, out of nowhere. Two dead guys 
from the Old Testament, except they're not dead. And technically, Elijah never died, but he was taken up to heaven in a whirlwind. How long ago? A thousand years ago. And Moses died on a mountaintop overlooking the promised land nearly 1,500 years before this. Two guys from the Old Testament, from centuries past, two guys from heaven, from another world, just appeared. And according to Luke, these two guys also had some sort of glorious appearance like Jesus. This brings up a really important why question. Why Moses and Elijah? Why anybody at all? Why, why not Abraham and David? I miss how Matthew even starts his gospel. And what are they talking about? Moses and Elijah are talking with Jesus about his exodus. I learned that from Luke again. Luke says, Behold, two men were talking with Jesus, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure. They spoke of his departure that he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. And so here Moses and Elijah appear and they talk with Jesus about what he's about to accomplish in Jerusalem. And they describe that as Jesus' departure. And that word is literally exodus. So Moses and Elijah are appearing with him in glory to talk with Jesus about his exodus that he's about to accomplish. There's an obvious theological question. Why in the world? Do they describe what Jesus is about to do in Jerusalem as his exodus? Now, as this, as this conversation is wrapping up, Peter jumps in and says something crazy. Which is not surprising. He suggests building three tabernacles for everybody. Look at verse 4. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. You should be glad that we're here. That's really what he's saying. It is. If you wish, I will make three tents here. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. That word tent is the word for tabernacle. Tabernacles are tents, Right? So Peter jumps in and suggests making a tabernacle for each one of them. One for Jesus, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now, both Mark and Luke inform us that Peter has once again said something he shouldn't have said. Mark says, Peter did not know what to say. For he was terrified. Luke says, Peter did not know what he was saying. So, apparently, Peter's suggestion is a bad idea. Why? 
Why does he think it's a good idea to begin with? And why does it work out to be not such a good idea? Which is obvious because God shuts it down immediately. Look at verse 5. God's going to interrupt Peter and he's going to speak from this bright cloud. Verse 5, it says, while Peter was still speaking, Peter was still speaking with, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And so notice Peter has barely started pitching this tabernacle idea and we get another behold. All of a sudden again, out of nowhere again, there appears a bright cloud which totally overshadows the whole scene. Luke says it engulfs them completely. And the language here indicates that this cloud has this same bright, spectacular light radiating from it that we see radiating from Jesus. Now imagine that now on the mountaintop from a mile away down in the valley. And another question. Why? Why does this big, bright cloud engulf this mountaintop and the men on it? And it says a voice comes out of the cloud. So God, God speaks from the cloud. We learn that from Peter himself 30 years later when he writes his second little letter. He says this is God speaking. Specifically, he says this is God the Father speaking directly from heaven. Can you imagine how loud, deafening that would have been? This was no whisper. This was no still, small voice. And you can tell by the way they respond in verse 6. It says, when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. Why does God speak? And why does he say what he says? Why these words right here? As soon as he says this one sentence, the whole thing abruptly comes to an end. But while the disciples are face down in the dirt, all of a sudden, just as quick as it started, it stopped. It stopped. The show stops. Verse 7 and 8 says, But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And so everything disappears all of a sudden. Just like everything disappears except Jesus, just like that. The glory cloud's gone. Moses and Elijah, gone. Jesus' appearance is back to normal. And it says they saw no one but Jesus only. Why? Why? Why did it happen like that? Why, why did the whole scene just disappear and all they see is Jesus? And look at what Jesus does. And look at what he says. He, he comforts them. They're terrified and he comforts them. They're face down. They're rightly terrified. 
But Jesus reaches down. He touches them and says, rise and have no fear. Why does Jesus say that? Is it just to calm their fear? Or is there some theological significance in even that? Now, this last paragraph shows the disciples having this discussion on the way down the mountain the very next day. And for time's sake, I'm not going to be able to spend a whole lot of time on this second paragraph. And one of the reasons I think that's okay is because Jesus has already been through this theological discussion with them uh, back in Matthew 11 about Elijah and John the Baptist, John the Baptist being Elijah come in the spirit and power of Elijah. But, as you can see, this question comes up again in light of what just happened. And so read, read with me about this explanation about Elijah's coming in verse 9. It says, And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, why then do the scribes say that Elijah must first come? And Jesus answered, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they please. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. And then the disciples understood that Jesus was speaking to them of John the Baptist. I want you to notice three things real quick from that. One, Jesus commands them not to disclose the transfiguration that they just witnessed until after his resurrection. He also confirms again to them that John the Baptist was Elijah in spirit and power. And he confirms again that he himself must suffer and die just like John the Baptist did. And so, why does this topic come up again? And what does it have to do with the whole theological design of this moment? Now, that's what happened. That's a historical account of the transfiguration of Jesus. And this all really happened. But why did it happen like this? Hope you see that there's a whole lot of why questions. In there. Honestly, there's more why questions in there than I can even see. There's more why questions in there than I can possibly ever show you. But I want you to realize this, that it's all by God's design. This really happened, and this really happened on purpose. And so let's look at the theological design in the transfiguration. Let's start by answering some of these why questions, but start with looking at the big picture question. Why does this even happen at all? Why does the transfiguration happen, and especially why at this point in Jesus' ministry? Why chapter 17? The answer is this, is that the transfiguration is working to establish a complete and robust 
theology about Messiah. So there's a problem. And this is the solution. This is part of the solution. Right? The problem is twofold. Wrong Christology, wrong understanding about the Messiah, and wrong eschatology. It seems like nobody understood who the Messiah would really be, what his mission would really be, or how his coming and his mission would actually unfold over time. We see this confusion or error in all sorts of ways throughout Matthew's Gospel. We see it in the way the religious leaders teach morality and prosperity and tradition and a political Messiah. And we see it in uh, John the Baptist's own questions from the dungeon. We see it in the answers that the disciples give when Jesus asked, who do people say that I am? We see it in, P in Peter's own rebuke of Jesus' idea of suffering and dying. And we see it in these questions about Elijah's coming. Do you think the disciples fully understand their own confession in chapter 16? You are the Christ, the son of the living God. They believe it. Now, they know it's true. The Father has revealed it to them. But what does it fully mean to be the Christ? And, and does the Son of God mean the Son God has promised? Or God in the flesh? Or both? And how? How can you harmonize those last two paragraphs in chapter 16? Jesus says, I'm going to get rejected by Israel and I'm going to suffer and be killed. And then he says, I'm going to come in glory to judge the world. problem, the wrong Christology, wrong eschatology, the solution is this, to establish witnesses to the truth. And that's exactly what's happening here in the transfiguration. God himself is about to establish a testimony about Jesus in and through the presence of many witnesses. I don't know if you realize it yet, but this paragraph, this little paragraph, is full of witnesses. Witnesses to the truth. Witnesses to the glory and identity of Jesus. You know, according to God's law, in order to establish a charge, you can only do it on the evidence of two or three witnesses. And in this one scene, you got four sets of witnesses. To the glory and the identity of Jesus. You got Peter, James, and John. You got Moses and Elijah. And in this one sentence from God, there are three other witnesses from the Old Testament. David from the Psalms. Isaiah from the prophets. Moses from the law. And then you've got the testimony of God the Father himself speaking. And the testimony of Christ being transfigured. Witnesses of glory. What's worth? That's the sermon title. Witnesses of glory. First, you've got the new covenant witnesses. Why Peter, James, and John? 
Peter, James, and John are new covenant witnesses of Jesus' glory. So you got just three of the twelve that are here. Three of the twelve are eyewitnesses of Jesus' transfiguration. There's the inner circle. Enough to establish a testimony, but few enough to kind of contain the narrative until after the resurrection. Like Jesus commands in verse 9. So you got... Peter, James, and John are witnessing the transfiguration, guess what? For themselves, for their own faith. Look at how this is even play out in this paragraph. Notice that it, it, it's for them. Like Jesus took them with him. Jesus led them up the mountain. Jesus was transfigured before them. Moses and Elijah appeared to them. The bright cloud overshadowed them. The voice spoke to them. Jesus reassured them. This is for them. They need to see this. They need to hear this. They need to continue to mature in their faith. That verbal confession back in Matthew 16 is not enough. The shock of hearing Jesus predict his own crucifixion rattled their deficient faith. They need to gain a more complete and robust theology about Messiah and his mission if they are going to be the witnesses that Jesus calls them to be. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And so this is why they're there. And now God brings witnesses to them. To witness to them and to establish their faith so that they could be witnesses to us. They witnessed the transfiguration for our faith. Why Moses and Elijah? They're witnesses too. They're old covenant witnesses of Jesus' glory. This is why they show up. Their, their presence sitting here talking with Christ in glory is going to speak volumes to the disciples about who Jesus really is. We'll see that in a minute. But there are other Old Testament witnesses here that have been assembled in the words from God himself. God himself bears witness to the glory of Jesus from the Old Testament scriptures. Look, he, he, he does this in this one sentence. He's got this one three-part sentence that I believe represents the sum total of Old Testament revelation about the Messiah. A after his resurrection... You know, Jesus goes and he reminds the disciples of what he taught them about the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms that they were written about him and they were fulfilled by him. And here God points to text from each of those divisions of the Old Testament. He says, this is my beloved son from David in the Psalms with whom I'm well pleased. From the servant songs of Isaiah and the prophets. Listen to him from Deuteronomy in the law of Moses. 
Now, in case all of that's not enough, Moses, Elijah, all of the Old Testament, God himself bears witness in a triple the theophany. The manifest presence of God is going to bear witness to Jesus' glory. you got this great overshadowing glory cloud. You've got this majestic voice of God the Father from heaven. And then you've got Jesus himself radiating this divine glory from within his human flesh. Witnesses. Witnesses to what? What is the testimony that's being established? Two things. And we've already heard it. Jesus is the Christ. And Jesus is the Son of God. This is the testimony. This is what Peter confessed in chapter 16. This is what's known as the great confession. And God, right here, God himself is confirming that confession in the most spectacular and supernatural way possible. Do you realize how important this is? Do you realize that this is the only right answer to that all-important question, who is Jesus? And do you realize that understanding this rightly is the difference between heaven and hell? This is what John says in his gospel. The same John that's witnessing this glorious event. He says, this is the reason I'm writing this gospel. This is the reason. So that you would believe two things, he says. What are those two things? That Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God. And by believing that, you may have life in his name. And here we have God. Proving this truth in the most convincing way possible. I want you to think about it. If you don't believe this testimony so graciously, graciously and abundantly and supernaturally provided here in the transfiguration, what else can God do? What else can he say to convince you? So... To answer a few more of those why questions about this twofold identity of Jesus. Jesus is the Christ. Now, in assembling all these witnesses, all these Old Testament witnesses, I think God is communicating something that actually may be more important, may be more stunning than the dazzling white light that's coming out of Jesus' skin right now. And it's this truth. That Jesus is the telos of redemptive history. I love that little word. I love that little Greek word, telos. And I, and I believe it is a perfect description of Jesus. And Jesus himself even uses this, a form of this word in his last cry from the cross. It is finished. Telos means the end point. 
the, the end point, the completion, the ultimate aim, the purpose finally consummated. All of the threads of theology and Christology and the gospel, all these threads from Old Testament revelation are coming and they find their end point in one person. Jesus. It's stunning. It's, it's, how in the world can that be? That all of that all of those strands of revelation come to one concentrated point. The man Christ Jesus. He is the aim and the end point of redemptive history. This is what God's doing here in this one little paragraph. He's, he's marshalling witnesses to that truth. Again. Why Moses and Elijah? Why not Abraham and David? Why not Adam or Noah? Why not Jacob or Judah or Solomon? Why Moses and Elijah? And I think there's, there's lots of answers to that question, but I believe the first one is this. That Moses and Elijah symbolize the law and the prophets all bearing witness that Jesus is the Christ. Moses is seen as the representative head of this category of the Old Testament that we refer to as the law. Elijah is considered the, the, the representative head of this category of Old Testament scripture referred to as the prophets. And these Two categories are sometimes used together to describe all of recorded redemptive history prior to the coming of Christ. The law and the prophets. The entirety of the Old Testament. In Matthew 5, Jesus himself says, I came to fulfill, to complete, to bring to perfection the law and the prophets. And here in this symbol charged self revelation of Jesus, as D.A. Carson says, we have symbols of the law and the prophets bearing witness to Jesus' true identity. Why? Because the law and the prophets bear witness that Jesus is the Christ. John 5, Jesus says, The scriptures bear witness about me. Moses wrote about me. Moses and the law bear witness that Jesus is the Christ. Think about it. The first five books of the Bible, the Torah, the, the law of Moses, written by Moses, they point to Christ in every chapter. The law promises this fallen world a deliverer, a deliverer. Who's going to crush the head of the seed of the serpent. He's going to reverse the curse of sin. He's going to bless all the nations. The law promises this king is going to rule all the nations. And a land of rest and peace on all sides. The law reveals the character of God. And his requirements to dwell blessed in his midst. And the law contains all sorts of pictures and shadows and 
types that all point to the Messiah and his mission. You get the Passover, the Exodus, the feast, the priesthood, the sacrifices of the tabernacle. And guess what? It all points to one person. The person standing here in glory talking to Moses. Jesus is the telos of the law. He fulfills the law in every way because Jesus is the Christ. Elijah and the prophets bear witness that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus says that after his resurrection to the disciples. And then all throughout the prophets, what do we see? We see threats of judgment and curse for breaking the law. Threats of exile from the land, but at the same time, promises of salvation, promises of another, even greater exodus, promises of a son, promises of a king, a savior, prophecies of the Messiah, and these assurances of a new covenant, a new heavens, and a new earth, a new land. Free from the curse of sin. And guess what? All that points to one person. The one standing here in glory, talking with Elijah. It all finds its fulfillment in one person, Jesus of Nazareth. All the promises of God find their yes and amen in him. Why? Because Jesus is the Christ. Now why does God say what he says? Why does he use these words? Again, he's pointing to Old Testament scriptures to bear witness that Jesus is the Christ. Look at this little three-part sentence in verse 5. First he says, Jesus is the promised son of David. He says, this is my beloved son. A clear allusion to Psalm 2, where God speaks about his anointed, his Messiah, the promised son of David. In this psalm, Psalm 2, that's written by David himself, the Messiah speaks. The Messiah speaks in verse 7. He says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. And here in the transfiguration, we have God the Father pointing to that and pointing to Jesus and saying, this is my son. In 2 Samuel, God had promised, he had promised David a son that would reign forever. And God said to David, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And here he is. Here he is, the promised Son, my beloved son, the Christ has come. And then he says in the second part, he says that Jesus is this promised servant of the Lord from Isaiah. Look at verse 5 again. He says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Luke adds, my chosen one. And all that comes from the first of four servant songs in Isaiah. This sentence starts them all off. It says, behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. 
Matthew has already defined Jesus as the servant of the Lord from Isaiah back in chapter 12. And now God declares the same. Jesus is the servant of the Lord in Isaiah. He is the one anointed with the Spirit of God. He is the one who will establish justice in all the earth and be a light, a light to the nations. He's the one that's going to open the eyes of the blind and lead the prisoners out of darkness. And he's going to usher in a new covenant, a new age, a new song. He's the one who will take God's salvation to the end of the earth. And yet, at the same time, he's the redeemer who's going to be deeply despised and abhorred by the nation. The one who's going to give his back to those who strike. Give his cheeks to those who pull out his beard. Give his face. The one glowing right now is going to give his face to disgrace and spitting, it says. The one that's going to be despised and rejected by men, pierced for our transgressions, and crushed for our iniquities. Yet, he's going to live and prosper despite having poured out his soul to death for sin. There is only one name that fits all those descriptions. Jesus. Why? Because he is the Christ. He is the Christ. And last, Jesus says, God says that Jesus is the prophet like Moses. He gets this from Deuteronomy 18, back in the law of Moses, where God has promised to one day raise up a great prophet like Moses. And it is him that you shall listen to. Listen to him. Here he is now. He's pointing to Jesus. He's pulling this back from Deuteronomy. Listen to him. And that actually leads to this next big question. Why does Moses and Elijah talk about Jesus' accomplishment coming up in Jerusalem as Exodus? Because Jesus is. The greater redeemer who's going to redeem God's people from the bondage of sin. This is another reason why Moses and Elijah are there. This is why they're calling Jesus' crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension his exodus. This is also one of the reasons why they disappear. It's one of the reasons why Moses and Elijah disappear. I want you to think about it. What did Moses do? He, he led the exodus, right? He was God's prophet, priest, and king who delivered God's people from the bondage of Egypt. But did Moses get them to the promised land? No. He did not complete the exodus. No, that was fulfilled by another one who bears the same name, Yehoshua. We pronounce it Joshua, a.k.a. Jesus, which means... Yahweh is salvation. So M Moses disappears and gives way to Joshua to complete the exodus and delivers God's people all the way into the promised land. But what about Moses? What about Elijah? I mean, he disappears too, right? In the Old Testament and here. 
He disappears and gives way to another one whose name is Elisha. The one who has a double portion of the spirit. The one who does twice as many miracles. The one whose dead bones actually give life to the dead. And guess what Elijah's name means? Basically the same thing as Joshua. God is salvation. Moses and Elijah give way to God's Savior, Jesus. The Christ and the Son of God. The Son of God. Why are they on a mountain? Who were the only two men in redemptive history who got a glimpse of God's glory on a high mountain? Moses and Elijah. God passes before them, revealing his power and glory. But both revelations are incomplete or sort of veiled in some way. Moses says, show me your glory. And God says, okay, go over there and hide. For no man can see my face and live. And Elijah is hiding in the cave when he finally comes out. He's got his cloak wrapped around his head when the glory of God passes before him. But now God brings Moses and Elijah back to the mountain and reveals his glory in the face of Jesus Christ. Why? Because Jesus is the Son of God. And notice... Jesus doesn't reflect God's glory like Moses did when he came down from the main mountain. He's actually radiating, radiating God's glory from himself. Why? This is to reveal who he is, that he really is the son of God in the flesh. That he really is Emmanuel, God literally with us. The image of the invisible God, the radiance of his glory, the fullness of deity really does dwell bodily in him. This is what we're seeing. And like the centurion, when he saw Christ on the cross, he said, truly this man is the son of God. Same reason the glory cloud shows up. The manifest presence of God identifying the Son. All through Scripture, this is what the glory cloud does. It wasn't really Moses that led the Exodus. It was the glory cloud that led the Exodus. This overshadowing pillar of cloud and fire filled with the presence of Yahweh. That's who led the Exodus. The same glory cloud that thundered the voice of God that terrified the people at Mount Sinai. The same glory cloud that engulfed Moses and his three witnesses on the mountain. The same glory cloud that filled the tabernacle, later filled Solomon's temple, and now fills Jesus Christ. Why? Because Jesus is the true tabernacle. God with us. One of the men here witnessing this, this is how he opens up his gospel. John says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. The true light. 
The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And we have seen what? His glory. We have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father. Man, this moment, you need to study it, just impacted these men, Peter and John, so greatly. John says, we touched him. We saw him. John saw his glory on that mountain top, and for decades he preached. And near the end of his life, he wrote so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ and the son of the living God. This is what... God is saying in that sentence, there's a second layer of meaning in that three-part sentence. He says, this is my son. This is my only begotten son. He's more than a man. He's more than a natural born son of David. He's also the eternal son of God with whom I am well pleased. He's the holy one of God. He's the one who knew no sin. He's the one who was tempted in every way, yet without sin. This is Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, the only righteous propitiation for sinners. I'm pleased with him. And you better listen to me. You better listen to me. Because I have given all judgment to my Son. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to the Son. Listen to Him. And then poof, everybody disappears, and they saw no one but Jesus alone. And how many times has God done this in Scripture when His people are afraid? What does God say to them? Fear not. And that's exactly what Jesus does. He touches them and says, fear not not. Why? Because Jesus is God. And this is what God does for his people. How many different witnesses are here? I don't even have time to get to the most important question. Let me just sum it up in this way. These three big questions. Why is, why is Peter's suggestion about three tabernacles wrong? Why do the disciples ask about uh, Elijah's coming? And why does Jesus say some of them are going to see him coming into his kingdom before they die? And it really boils down to this. Wrong eschatology. A wrong understanding of the end times. A wrong understanding of how the messianic age unfolds. What they fail to see is it's not one big moment of glory. It's suffering. Then glory and the kingdom and the end. And this is why Peter suggests building tabernacles. He thinks this is the end. It's going to be the last Feast of Tabernacles where we celebrate the past Exodus and we look forward to the one that's going to come. And here it is, it's here. Let's set up the tents and party. No. They come down from the mountain. It all disappears. They come down from the mountain because it's just a preview. 
It's just a preview of what's to come. Why do they ask about Elijah again? Because Jesus talks about his resurrection again. And Mark tells us that they don't understand again. Because here's what they don't get. Oh, wait a minute, Jesus. If Elijah is coming to restore all things, why are you going to die? That doesn't make sense. Suffering, then glory. Suffering, then glory. And then why does Jesus say? Like you got to get these four things. That, four things got to go together here. He's, he says, I'm going to suffer, die, and be raised. I'm going to come in glory and judge the world. And some of y'all are going to see me coming into my kingdom before you die. And then you got the transfiguration. How does all of that fit together? It's that. It's this. That the transfiguration is just a preview of what is to come. It's a preview of his exaltation when he is raised from the dead and ascends and sits down at the right hand of the Father and pours out the Holy Spirit and his kingdom begins to advance to all the nations. And 11 of the disciples saw that. Judas died. And the transfiguration is a preview of that last day when Jesus is going to come again in glory to be witnessed by everybody. This is what you're going to see on that last day. This Christ, not the baby in the manger, but this one right here in glory and power. This is the one that you're going to see seated on that great white throne judgment where people are going to cry out for the rocks to fall on their heads. And us, though we who believe, are going to be glorified like him because we're going to see him. And so I want you to just consider these few things today from this. I want you to consider Jesus' glory. Do you believe that he really is the Christ, that he really is the Son of God. I know there's, there's people in this room that don't believe that. Do you even understand what it means? Do you see anything glorious in this at all? I want you to think about these things. Consider the glory of Christ. Believe these things. Be like Moses and ask him, please show me your glory. I don't see it. Please show it to me before I die, before I perish. Show me the glory of Christ. Trust me, look, you cannot ignore Jesus anymore. You've got to stop ignoring Jesus. The Lord of glory is calling you to obedience. He's calling you now to bow your near knee to him and pledge your allegiance to him as Christ, King and Son of God, Lord of all. This is not optional. God demands it. He says, listen to him. And brothers and sisters, I want you to consider Jesus in all of Scripture. Man, learn to see Jesus everywhere. Strive to behold his glory on every page of this book. It's there. It's there. And I want you to consider Jesus on the last day. And there's two ways to view that. If you don't know Jesus... 
This is the Christ you're going to face. Not meek and mild, but unimaginable power and glory. This is, this is who you're going to face on Judgment Day. When, as Paul says, the Lord Jesus is going to be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire and inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. But if you do know Christ, I want you to consider this last day in a different way. This is the day of redemption. And guess what? This is who you're going to see. This is who you're going to see. When, when he comes on that same day, Paul talks about, on the same day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at by those who have believed. And guess what? This is what you're going to become. Look at what's here. This is what you're going to be. In some glorious way, when you see him, you're going to be like him. When Jesus appears from heaven on that last day, he's going to transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. You're going to bear the image of the man of heaven forever like this. You're not going to be God. But you're going to be like him. Consider that. Just a few days. We're going to be with him and like him. Like David wrote. 3,000 years ago. Those who look to him. Are ready. Father, there is so much here. There's so much glory here. Pray that you would feed your sheep. Pray that you would uh, show Christ in all this. That you would take these few words that you have so marvelously crafted together in this one event that you've so marvelously orchestrated throughout redemptive history to reveal your beloved Son. Help us to worship him. Help one who doesn't see him now to, to see him and to come to him for mercy and grace. Bless the preaching of your word, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.